I'm Kara Stern. And I'm Mike Moffat. And today we have a guest joining us, Sean Spear. He's the editor-at-large of The Hub, a center-right online news organization. So this week, Doug Ford reversed his decision to cut up the green belt. And uh, I was wondering, both of you, I guess let's go to Sean first. What did you think when you heard the news? <laughs> the, the government is in a crisis. Um, and it's a crisis of its own making. Um, you know, I'm not of the view that the citizens of the greater Toronto area would be opposed to the idea of, of some reforms or adjustments to the green belt. Um, uh, it's present size is not written in stone by the hand of God. Um, and in light of, of the housing affordability challenges, which of course, Mike has really been at the center of, of bringing awareness to and understanding of, I think Ontarians could be persuaded that there are trade-offs to be made. Um, and, um, and I think you could create the political conditions for revisiting parts of the Greenbelt. Do you think he can still do that now after, because he said he wasn't, he was going to open the Greenbelt, then he wasn't, then he did it anyways. And now he's saying he's not going to do that. Do you think there's, there's still room for him to do it in a, in a, I guess, a fair process? Well, the short answer is no. So, so what, what, what I was getting at, uh, Carrie, is I, I do think there is a world, a parallel universe where that, what I just outlined is, is, is possible. It would have involved some calculated risk, uh, but it seems to me it, 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 one could argue it would have been risk worth taking. Of course, that's not what the government did at all. <laughs> uh, the government did essentially the opposite. It promised it wouldn't touch the green belt. Then in hindsight, we now know it carried out you know, what one could describe as a shady uh, or certainly non-transparent process uh, to revisit the, the Green Belt. Um, and now it's facing multiple resignations, including ministers, key staff, and this um, extraordinary mea culpa from the premier. Uh, if you're someone who thinks that we do need to revisit the Green Belt in the name of, of um, boosting housing supply in the province, um, this whole exercise has, in my view, done real damage to that cause. And, and I'll just wrap up with this point. It, it does speak to um, some in, inherent problems for the Ford government. It came to office in 2018 um, in large part because Ontarians had had enough of the previous Liberal government. Its policy agenda at that time um, was pretty limited. It was then subsequently re-elected with another majority government and yet similarly had um, pretty limited or, or unclear priorities coming into this new term of office. And my experience in Ottawa is when the government doesn't have a plan, when it doesn't have something of a North Star um, that is guiding the policymaking process, that's guiding its communications to, to the public and so on, it really does risk um, kind of careening from mini crisis to mini crisis until they accumulate into a major crisis. And I think that's, that's where the, the, the premier and the government find themselves now. And um, I think in hindsight, um, it was somewhat predictable precisely because there was this vacuum um, at the heart of the government's uh, 
policy agenda. That's that's never a good thing. That's when governments get themselves into trouble. Mike? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I essentially have the same view as Sean, but I see it from the other side. As somebody who likes to keep the green belt intact, I think that the Ford government did us the best possible favor. Um, you know, and, it, it's, it, and it's funny because one of the reasons, you know, at our institute, like we've never, you know, housing would never really been in, in our mandate, right? We're a um, center that, that puts together uh, the environment and, and the economy. And, you know, back about five years ago, four or five years ago, you know, I was talking to some of our advisors and going, well, you know, I, I really think we should uh, start to dive into this housing issue that I, I think this is going to, this is a big deal. And I think it's only going to get larger. And they're like, well, it's fine, but we don't, you know, where's the sort of environment and the economy going together? Like we can kind of see it as an economic issue, but an environmental issue. And I said to them, I said, well, look, you know, I talk to my students all the time, my, my 23 year olds and uh, fourth year undergrads. And, you know, they believe that they're never going to be able to afford a home and never going to be able to have a place to, to build a home. And I say, you know, some of them are going to conclude like, well, why don't we just build it over that green space over there? It's not getting used for anything. And of, of course, my, my advisors who tend to be all sort of older environmentalists go, no, that can't happen. That's a third rail that will never, never happen. So um, so it's one of the few exceptionally right calls I've had over the time. And, and to be fair, you know, that, that my doing that was after Ford had said in 2018, he would, you know, make these changes then immediately backed off. I was like, I don't think this is dead. So, uh, I do, I, I do think this, this flawed process has saved the green belt because I agree with Sean that if, had there been a better process out there. I don't think this is the third rail that people thought there was. And well, the thing is, even if it's split 50-50, that's a really good place for the conservatives to be, right? Uh, so uh, I do I do think that this government, the, the provincial government is not uh, going to, to change the, the green belt. I do think there is a larger, longer time issue here, though, that I hear from urban planners and so on, they'll have all of these estimates of be like, okay, we don't need to build on the green belt because we have 18 or 22 or 26 years of land left. Like, okay, great. But what happens then? <laughs> I say this is a 46 year old, 26 years goes faster than you think. Um, so I do think there is, you know, particularly for us on the progressive side and the environmental movement side that we really have to start to think through, okay, well, what do the next hundred years look like? And what are the trade-offs and opportunities uh, we have if we want to, you know, keep uh, this space, the importance of farms and wetlands and so on, and still make sure that, uh, you know, a growing, a continually growing population has somewhere to live. Mike, can I put a question to you? Um, yeah. And bear with me, it might be clumsy, but let me set it up and then get your reaction. You know, I... Um, I live in New York City these days um, because uh, my, my spouse works here and we live um, in South Harlem, um, surrounded by mid-rise buildings. Um, and we were in Montreal, we were in Toronto rather in, in, in the winter. And I was struck having lived in New York now for the past few years to, to come into Toronto and see the hyper density within about three kilometers of Union Station. And then to drive out past uh, Bloor and see um, how low the density is. I, I mean, I lived in Toronto for several years, but it never quite, the starkness of the, the graduation of density um, didn't strike me until I moved to New York, which has very few parts of the city that are as dense 
as the Toronto downtown, but of course is far denser um, than most of the rest of, of the city of Toronto. So having made those past choices, how do you go about um, um, overcoming them? You know, Mike has done some work, Kara, uh, um, for a project I'm involved in at, at the University of Toronto called Ontario 360. We'll be publishing a paper pretty soon by uh, housing policy scholar Steve LaFleur uh, and a colleague, and they estimate that between 2016 and 2021, about 75% of new housing supply in the GTA was built within um, three kilometers of Union Station. And the other uh, 25% was built uh, 20 or 30 kilometers outside the city. So in other words, there's this donut um, in the, you know, in our most dynamic job creating city, uh, the types of the parts of the city that could house the young dynamic people that Mike has, has, has documented are, are leaving. So how do you deal with the kind of pre, you know, the, the sunk costs of the housing policy choices that have been made in the past? Well, it's, it's difficult. And it's, I would say it's a, a political issue. Like if you want to build 500 units in, in a city, knowing that, that any form of construction is going to have local opposition, are you better off having one building of 500, uh, you know, 500 units, or are you better off having 10 buildings scattered across the city of, of 50 each? And politically, it's obviously the first one because you're only picking one fight instead of 10. And ideally, you're uh, even better politically, like a lot of times those uh, new buildings are, are going up near office towers and things like that anyway, because so there's not that many local residents to uh to annoy so i actually think this is an area where you almost have to go to a higher order of, of government um and you know you have those recommendations in the um, provincial task force to allow you know six to 12 stories by right on transit lines and things like that because there is a real sort of free rider problem here and to bring it i haven't made any sort of small town southwestern ontario references yet so i, I feel obligated to do that but you know, let's say you're, um, let's say you're Woodstock, Ontario, or Tilsonburg, one of my favorite places. Tilsonburg has an affordability issue. Tilsonburg has a homelessness issue. The challenge is Tilsonburg can never solve any of those things because the more it creates affordable housing and places to live, it just has more people moving in from Toronto. So because there's this, you know, movement between jurisdictions, it causes the need for the province or the federal government to step in and set those minimum standards and go like, hey, there's just way too many externalities involved. So, you know, we need to have this sort of blanket uh, re rezoning, which is, you know, tough as well, because then everybody gets upset at the province or the federal government. But you have to do it that way when it's this kind of local building by building um, type battles, it creates the conditions, you're gonna end up with this tall, tall and sprawl model, the the missing middle, uh, as we as we say. Yeah, it, I've found watching it, I've always thought, well, I went to last year to the CN Tower for the first time, despite having always lived in or around Toronto. Um, and that's what I, I had the same thought when we went to the top, I was like, oh, all the buildings are like in this one spot. And then everything else is just single family homes as far as you can see it until you get actually not as far as you can see it. Cause yeah, as you get farther, you see the, the big buildings coming out. And I know that's something that a lot of, it's something I would like to talk about some more because 
that's been a policy choice to say, well, why not put it out far and just build transit so people can just come in? And it's like, but why not just build it where people actually want to live? Um, it's never made sense. And I guess that's something that we, I, it's interesting watching a change where, for example, Trudeau, I heard recently had just said to, his government had said to uh, Nova Scotia, they had to upzone, otherwise they wouldn't get money from the federal government. Like, is that the solution here? I think so. And that's, well, it's funny that, that both, you know, despite their, their differences, Polyev and Trudeau have basically landed on the same place, right? That, that Trudeau's framing it as, as carrots, like do the, do this upzoning and we will give you money. Whereas uh, Polyev says, do this. If you don't do this upzoning, we won't give you money, which is really saying the same thing. Like do this thing I want you to, and I'll give you a hundred bucks or, like, I won't give you a hundred bucks unless you do this thing I want you to do, you know? So it's, it's largely a change in framing, but I do think that that's it. And, uh, you know, the federal government or, or the province, depending on which has to do it, there's an opportunity here that our municipalities need money and need money badly. And the federal government has more of it. So I do think there is a win-win solution here where the federal government says, okay, you know, we need you guys to, to, to knock off some of these, uh, sillier rules. And in exchange, we'll sort of recognize that, hey, if you're building more housing around transit, you're going to need more transit. So here's some additional transit funding. Yeah, if I can comment on this, Kara and Mike, it's something I've, I've thought a lot about. Um, I, should, I should say that my starting point, all things being equal, um, is that the federal government ought to not involve itself in provincial and local jurisdiction. That... Um, that we ought to aim for something resembling watertight compartments when it comes to the functioning of our federalism. In fact, um, I've been critical of the current government's tendency to want to um, use the federal spending power to involve itself in dental care and child care and health care and, and so on and so forth. I can make a principle-based argument, however, that housing is different, that housing ought to be an exception. And that's because the federal government, of course, has a constitutional responsibility for the functioning of the economic union of the national economy. And there's a lot of compelling research and evidence um, that um, the housing affordability challenges we're, we're, we're facing in our country are creating distortions in the national economy. The labor market is screaming at the top of its lungs for people to come to dynamic cities like Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver and housing affordability challenges rooted in the policy choices of provincial and, and, and local governments uh, um, is standing in the way. And so as a conservative who, um, you know, has a decentralized view of federalism, uh, subscribes to the principle of subsidiarity, I can satisfy in my own mind that that housing is different, that it it is, it is to Mike's observation, it is that the kind of foundation of the proper functioning of the National Economic Union. And, and so for that reason, it's not merely politics, that there's actually a, a role for the national government to intervene here and enable the national economy to function um, efficiently and properly. Thank you so much for all your time, Sean. We really appreciate you speaking to us today. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. That's all for us today. Thanks for watching and listening to The Missing Middle. Don't forget to subscribe so you can catch all of our new episodes as soon as they're out. Questions, comments, show ideas, please leave them in the comments. Thank you to our guest, Sean Spear, and to our producer, Meredith Martin. Until next time.